invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if you've ever read the book or seen the movie called Catch Me If You Can. Um, it's a story, in fact the subtitle of the book is The True Story of a Real Fake. Um, Frank Abagnale um, has many aliases. Frank Williams, Robert Conrad, Frank's, Frank Adams, Robert Monjo. Um, he was a con man, um, imposter, a forger. He was all of those things. And uh, amazingly, before the age of 21, here's some of the things that he did. Um, he co-piloted a Pan Am jet when he was not a pilot, had never flown before, had no ability or experience. He got himself into being the supervising resident a director of doctors at a major hospital when he had never gone to medical school. He practiced law and became a very highly used lawyer without ever having a license or a law degree. He also became a college sociology professor at a university without having any education or qualifications. He also successfully forged $2.5 million worth of checks. His nickname by law enforcement was the Skywayman. He did all of those things that I mentioned to you before the age of 21. Frank Abagnale was an expert at appearing to be something that he was not. Um, what he was on the outside, what he appeared to be to everyone else, whether it was in a law firm or a hospital or in uh, um, a college campus or even in an airplane, he was not any of those things. On the inside, or who he really was, was something completely different. In the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at this morning, Jesus is going to tell us the true story of some real fakes in his day. And he didn't call them con men, or he didn't call them forgers, or he didn't call them imposters. He called them hypocrites. The word hypocrite is used in Matthew's Gospel 12 times by Jesus. It was one of his favorite terms to describe what he would say would be religious phonies. He uses the word three times in the text that I read you this morning. Hypocrite is an unusual Greek word. It means literally to play an act or a part on the stage in a theater. It was truthfully, the word is a word that means to wear a mask. That's the literal use of it. It was, on, it was what people did when they stood on the stage and acted out apart, but that wasn't really who they are. That was just who they were on stage. But who they were in real life was something completely different. They were different on the inside than they were on the outside. And see, that's the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Particularly two groups of people, which he names in the Sermon on the Mount more than once, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees. Like Frank Abagnale, the scribes and the Pharisees were experts at being religious fakes and phonies. They were people who appeared to, by all estimations, by everyone else, externally they appeared to be righteous, but internally they were something completely different. So much so, look at chapter 5 and verse 20, and then I'm going to read chapter 6 that we read already, verse 1 again, because I want to get you to understand where Jesus is going in our text. Chapter 5 and verse 20 reads, and this is talking of the scribes and Pharisees. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds 
that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't be a believer. You aren't really a Christian. You will not go to heaven. You'll not be with God forever unless you have a different kind of righteousness that they had. It has to exceed it. Now, if you were Jewish and you heard Jesus speak those words, you would think he was talking about impossibilities because the average religious Jewish person who was orthodox and kept Torah in Jesus' day would have thought that the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people that they knew. And by all marks, externally, that was probably true. But Jesus says in his kingdom that you need a different kind of righteousness. You can't just have a religious righteousness. You have to have a real righteousness. Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was only something external. Something they put on on the outside. But it did not reach them on the inside. And so with that in mind, look again afresh at 6.1. And the first word in our text is what? Beware. Oh, see, can you hear that this morning? That is a word of warning. You know, in our culture, we have warning labels on just about everything. And Jesus is putting a warning label on being religious. He says, beware, because even the most religious people that are there in the world, scribes and Pharisees, i.e., Beware of them, because it's not real. There's only two times in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5-7, through that Jesus gives the warning, beware. It's in this text, and the other one is chapter 7, in verse 15, where he says, beware of false prophets. But listen to how he describes why you should beware of false prophets. He says, because on the outside, they wear sheep clothing. They look like sheep, timid, nice, loving little animals. But on the inside, he says, they are ravenous wolves. Outside, they are this. Inside, completely polar opposites. He says that's why the warning is issued. Because religious and religiosity can destroy your life. You can deceive yourself into thinking that you are one thing when you are incredibly the opposite of those things. I, as I read the text, here's what I came up with. You know, Jesus is exposing religious fakes, but you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say beware of false tax collectors. He doesn't say beware of false prostitutes. He doesn't say beware of false unrighteous people. Here's why. Because in Jesus' day, sinners weren't pretending to be something they were not. Zacchaeus did not pretend to be anything other than a tax collector. It wasn't the non-religious, it wasn't the unrighteous people, it wasn't the people whose lives were, going to say, out there somewhere. You know, Jesus has said that, that's dangerous, but there's a level of danger that goes way beyond that. And that is thinking that you have, appear to have your life together when you really don't. And Jesus says, that's who I reserve my harshest criticism and condemnation for. People who think they have it together or want other people to think that, but they really don't. So the religious leader, being religious can be harmful. to well, How harmful to your health, Pastor Walker? Jesus has a series of judgment oracles. What's a judgment oracle? Well, in Matthew 23, same book, don't turn there. Seven times he starts out a condemnation to this very same religious group of people, scribes and Pharisees, with this word, woe. It doesn't mean woe like you stop a horse. 
Woe is the Old Testament way of saying, may God judge you. And you know what he says? May God judge you, scribes and Pharisees. And he says, hypocrites. Hypocrites. So how serious it is, is it to be religious and, and appear to be one thing on the outside, but be empty and void of God on the inside? Well, it's serious. It's eternally serious. In fact, the word woe in Matthew's gospel is only used three times outside of religious hypocrites. It's to a city that was unbelieving in Jesus, Chorazon. It was to the world in general and to Judas who portrayed Jesus. Now that's not a category, a group of people that you want to be associated with. But that's how serious Jesus takes it. He says, if you're a hypocrite, here's a synonym for it. Blind guide. You really can't tell anyone else how to live their lives because you're blind to the reality of your own, he says. So what's the definition of a hypocrite? How do I know, Pastor Walker? Because I don't want to be it, obviously. How do I know if I'm a hypocrite? How do I know if I'm a religious phony? Verse 1 of chapter 6 makes it pretty clear. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people And why would they do it? What would motivate them? What's the purpose? In order that you may be seen by them, seen by other people. See, notice religious hypocrites are not people, are not people who do bad things. They do wrong, good things for the wrong reason. They practice righteousness. And the three areas, the three acid tests of Jesus, of whether you're a hypocrite or not, is how you give, how you pray, and how you fast. Those are spiritual disciplines, we would call them. And religious phonies are not people who don't do them. They are people who do them religiously. They do them as a discipline. They practice them. They do pray. They do give. They do fast. They're the people who are in churches, like some of us today. They're people who went to the synagogues. The Bible says they are people who are on the streets. They were known in their community of being really good people. Religious hypocrites, when they practice their righteousness, they seem to be so godly that you would look at them and say, you want your kids to grow up to be like them. They're examples of people in the church. They look like they have it all together. But the dangerous part is, is what few people ever know, is they really don't have it all together. Inside, they're duplicitous. They are two-faced, we'd say. Because below the religious veneer and the facade and the superficiality of their life, see, there is a secret life that they live. And here's what motivates them to do all the things that they do on the outside. It's to be seen by others. It's what drives them. It's not a desire to please God it's a desire to be accepted by people. It's a desire to be to one who fits in. Can you see it all throughout the text? Look with me. 6-1, seen by others. Jesus has to tell them in 6-2 that when you give, don't sound a trumpet before you. In other words, don't give in such a way that it causes people to look at you or draws attention. He says, don't do it, verse 3, to be praised by others or get glory for others. In fact, it is so deep in their lives, they don't just do it, they love. Listen, they love to do it, verse 5 says. For they love to do it so that they may be seen by others. See, they have a public life that looks like it's filled with God. But the reality of it on the inside is it's not a God love that moves them. It's a self love and a man love that moves them. 
They want to fit in. They value looking good over being good. In our text, there does seem to be a seem to be a contradiction, and I want to point it out in case you've seen it and you're asking about it as you hear me talk today. In one sense, in chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says, so let your light shine, listen, before men, that they may see your good works. Now, the whole text we're looking at says the opposite, does it? I mean, here Jesus says, let your light shine before people, do stuff in front of people, let them see your good works. And then in Matthew 6, he's all about don't do your stuff in front of men, don't do your righteousness, don't let it be done so that they can see you. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that in verse 5 and verse 16, you're doing it, and here's the word, so that they can glorify God. In chapter 6 and verse 5, the same word for glory is used. When you want to get the praise of people, it's really you want their glory. So you see, here's what it is. And I want you to get down inside yours. I want to see down to the core of who you are today. See, here's the difference between a religious phony and a righteous person. What they are on the inside. On the inside. Down to the very thing that drives them and motivates them to be seen for God's glory or to be seen for their own glory. See, you got to know the difference between the two. So, what is your motivation? Can I ask you, why did you come to church today? For God or for you? Did you come to shine for Him or to show for others? It's such a danger. Hold your finger. I actually want you to turn to this passage in John chapter 12, if you would. Can I show you and press on you the seriousness of what Jesus is saying? To want the praise of men over the praise of God, I'll be honest with you, can take you to hell. John 12, Jesus says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But watch. But for fear of the Pharisees, these are the religious hypocrites, they did not confess it. In other words, they thought that they could have this secret life, and I believe in Jesus in here, but I can't really show it on the outside because I'll be in serious trouble. What kind of trouble? Why were they afraid? Because here's what the authorities have had. And if you read in John 9, you'll know that it had been around for a while because the blind man from birth that Jesus gave him sight... They kicked him out of the synagogue. Look what it says in the text. They didn't confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. It's not just meaning you can't come to church because in a town, the synagogue was the center of everything. If you weren't accepted and got kicked out of the synagogue, no one would do any economic or financial dealings with you. You would not be accepted in culture. They wouldn't let you buy food from them. You would have no relationships. You'd be cut off from everything sociologically that was possible in your culture. It was a big deal. It meant the end of the relationships you had with people. It means your whole life would change. I mean, and not for the good. So there was a cost to following Jesus. For the blind man in chapter 9, verse 22, where it says he would be kicked out of the synagogue. And and for these people, And so they would say, hey, I want to have Jesus on the inside, but I'm not going to show it. Kind of like some of us did when we went to high school. Hey, I want to be cool and accepted by my friends. And I'm a Christian, but I can't take that stuff to school. And I can't take that stuff to work. Because if I took that stuff to work, 
you know, I wouldn't be popular and, and, and I wouldn't make the ball team or I wouldn't have a girlfriend or my friends would drop me when they tell, I'm not going to watch that kind of movie. See, I can't take that stuff to school. I might get fired from my job. I wouldn't get a promotion. They're, I'm going to stay here at the same level for years. They're going to overlook me. See, because I can't take my Christianity to work. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid. And Jesus says in the passage, why? Why were they so afraid? Why would be kick, be, what drove them to value being in the synagogue, accepted and fitting in by their religious peers who didn't believe in Jesus? It says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see it? That's what they loved. It's not just that they made a mistake. It was what they really loved. They really didn't love the praise of God. They weren't really living for him. He was not their audience of one. What they really lived for is that people would pat him on the back and like him, and they could excel in life. And sociologically, there would be no cost for them. And it wouldn't mean that they, they could love Jesus, but they didn't want to change. They didn't want to change what they loved and who they loved the most. And they loved him, listen, comparatively, more than. It's the idea that they weighed it out. If I love God and I love this, what's going to happen? And what they chose, they chose people over God. Can I tell you this? That mindset is satanic. You remember when Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter grabbed Jesus by the shoulders in Matthew 16 and Jesus was saying, you know, I'm going to go and they're going to crucify me and the third day I'm going to write. And Peter grabs Jesus by the shoulders and says, Lord, this will not happen to you. Do you know what Jesus responded? He says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Do you see that? You know what's satanic is when you value the world's values and what they say and fitting in with them more than you do with God. And that's what Peter was doing. And so he told Peter, get behind me, Satan. See, they wanted to fit in. And the fear of man controls us. And if we're not careful as Christians, it'll drive our hypocrisy. It'll silence our witness. It'll, it'll dull our boldness for Christ. It'll compromise our convictions at school, at work, in our families. See, I'd rather fit in my family, and I'm not going to say when everybody else wants to do this, and this is where we're going to go on vacation, and these are the things that we're going to do on our vacation. See, I'm going to have to just go along with it. Why? Because I know what it'll cost me if I stand up and do what Jesus wants me to do. And see, we're unwilling. In our culture, we call it Jekyll and Hyde, and I don't even have to tell you the story. In fact, you don't even have to know what the Jekyll and Hyde story is about because you know what it means in our culture. Its language means that there's an unpredictable dual nature in you. That on the outside you're one thing, on the inside you're completely another one. See, there are a lot of Christians who think they can live the Jekyll and Hyde kind of life. When you come to church, you have the right clothes and you look right and you sit in the pews and everything appears to be righteous and you have your Bible in hand and you might even be taking notes. All the while, the hide is inside. And Jesus says in verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2, that that's not how true believers are. 
That's not what Christians are really like. And you know how strongly he emphasizes it? And every three category, all three categories of spiritual disciplines, whether it's giving or praying or fasting, here's the pattern he sets. Ready? Look at verse two. Therefore, when you give to the needy. And then he goes on a little bit later in verse three. But when you, see the contrast? See, this is how they do it. The religious, the religious people, this is, they, we do the same thing on the outside. But you know what's different? He says, but when you do it, don't do it like they do. You do it differently when you give. Same thing in verse five. And when you pray, verse six, see the word, but when you do this. Same thing when it comes to fasting in verse 16. And when you, and then he says a little later in verse 17, but you, every time it's, this is what they do. But when you pray, Now, it's not that we don't do the spiritual disciplines. See, what's different about us with real righteousness versus religious righteousness, it's not because we don't pray, give, and fast. We do. They do. We do. That's not where the difference lies, primarily. The difference is on the inside. See, they do it to earn God's favor. We do it because, in his mercy, he's already given it to us. True Christianity has a different secret life than religious people. See, secret life means what you are in private, what you are when nobody's looking except God, who always sees us. In chapter 6 and verse 4, the word secret is used twice. It's also used twice in verse 6, and it's also used twice in verse 18. Each one of the categories of spiritual disciplines, each one of the acid tests of Jesus to prove whether you're a hypocrite or not. And the hypocrisy is not proved by what you do on the outside, but what you are on the inside. The word secret is the word in the Greek, crypto. We get crypt from it, a secret burial chamber. It's used by Jesus a little earlier in chapter 5 and verse 14 when he says, a city that is put on a hill cannot be hidden. It can't be kept in secret. If you have a massive city on a top of a hill where everybody sees it, in other words, you can't hide it. You can't keep it secret. Here's what Jesus says. A Christian has a secret life, the life on the inside, the one that nobody else sees, but God. And you know what? It makes him marketably different from those who are just religious people. And you know what it is? They have a hidden heart that is completely opposite, antithetical to a person who is just religious. Let me give you the examples that Jesus gives. What kind of heart does a real person who has true righteousness have versus a religious person? Look at chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. See, they don't just look pure. They are pure below the surface. They are pure in their heart. They, you know what drives them to be pure? They are motivated by a holy God. So they don't just do pure things on the outside. They are pure on the inside, and that's what moves them. Jesus says, look at this as an example. Chapter 5 and verse 28. A religious person is only worried about disobeying the command to commit adultery, meaning adulterous deeds. 
But the difference between that and a righteous person, Jesus says, is they worry about lust because when you lust after a woman, it is adultery already, listen, in your heart. Do you see what he says? So it's a religious person says, I just can't do adulterous deeds. I, I guess be faithful to my wife. I just can't commit adultery. You know what a religious, a righteous person says? No, I don't, I don't do the deeds, but I also hate the desires. I don't want to look at another woman. I don't want to even have a desire for anybody else. You know why? Because it goes deeper. It goes deeper. And Jesus says, and here's the most important one. Chapter 6 and verse 21 says, when it comes to God and money, See, religious people, like the Pharisees, could say they love God, but they love money too. And it was obvious by the way they treated their own parents and how they treated other people and didn't use their money to care for anyone. And Jesus says there's a reason for that. Because in 621, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, that's the core of it, isn't it? See, religious people and righteous people are different on this count. Righteous people have a heart treasure that's God, not money. So they hold things loosely and they hold people tightly. That's the difference. So when they pray and they give and fast, we do it differently than they do. You know why? Because we have different desires. We have different motivations. We have different things driving us. It's our heart. And what is that heart filled with? Listen, here's what it's filled with. And it's all over the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in our passage, in all three categories of spiritual disciplines, it's because we have a relationship with, and here's the word, Father. 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about his Father. It's the word Abba. It means to have a tender relationship with someone. See, the religious leaders always called God just God. But not Jesus. He, was, he never spoke of God in prayer apart from calling him his Abba, his Father, because it, religion and a relationship are completely different. So they had to have their religious things done in public, and it says in the synagogues or on the streets. They had to have everybody see it because it really wasn't for God. It was for themselves because it was just a religious duty. But not Christians, not true believers, not those who really follow Jesus. See, when it comes from your heart, I don't have to see how everybody else see because my relationship is with him. And so Jesus says repeatedly, and your father who sees in secret, your father, he'll reward you, see, because I have a relationship with him. I don't do it for them. I do it for him. Because he's my God. He's my father. See, all spiritual disciplines, verse 4 of chapter 6, when it comes to giving, chapter 6, verses 6, 8, and 9, when it comes to praying. In fact, the, the father, isn't that the prayer that people ritualistically say? Our father who art in heaven. Jesus taught us because when you go to prayer, that's a relationship. When you give in the offering, that's a relationship. When you fast, it's a relationship. So let me get down to the nitty-gritty. You ready? When I pray, when I give, and when I fast, it's out of a relationship. What would that look like? Well, I give to the needs of others. Why? Because when I do so, I demonstrate that God is my treasure, not money. 
I don't give to the needy or put money in the plate because if I don't, I'm thinking God's going to take it from me some other way. And if I ever want to make sure I don't get a flat tire or my job is success and my marriage is awesome, I better keep giving because God told me to. I'm not motivated like that. I'm motivated because I want to demonstrate when how much I give and when I give. Here's what I want to say. God, it's you I treasure, not money. And when I give, I don't give just out of duty. I give out of my heart because I'm giving myself first. See, when I pray, I don't pray just to ask God things so that he can do stuff for me and get me out of emergency crisis and really work out problems I have no control over. That's not why I pray. It's not out of spiritual discipline. It's out of spiritual dialogue. See, I love God. He's my father, and I want to talk to him. They fast. To look so people can look, oh, wow, you're not eating. Look at your face. You, don't, you, you must be so godly. Jesus says, no, wash your face. Anoint yourself. Don't look that way. You know why? Because when we fast, here's what we want to communicate. That my truest and greatest hunger is not food. It's God. See, I don't need more food in my stomach. I need more God in my heart. See, that's what we're after. That's what motivates. But see, people who are religious, they never get to that place. They never get that deep in their lives. It's only the externals. So we put ashes on our face and we do things. You know why? Because it's ritual. It doesn't get below the surface. So there's a difference between religious giving and righteous giving. Religious praying and righteous praying. There's a difference between religious fasting and righteous fasting. And it's not out here, it's in here. So what are you in secret? Because let me tell you this, what you are in secret, that you are no more, no less. You are not just what you do on the outside. You are really what you do in secret. So I put this together. The secret of the Christian life is to live the Christian life in secret. See, it's what you are when you're at home and no one's looking and no one's watching you open your scriptures. No one sees you get on your knees. No one knows that you're not having lunch today. No one knows what you put in the offering plate because you did it digitally online. Because what you are in secret is what you really, really are. The story of Ravi Zacharias recently is tragic, isn't it? He was touted as the greatest apologist of this century for the Christian faith. He has traveled all over the world. He is famous on multiple continents. He has written numerous books that were bestsellers. He has talked and lectured and been asked on atheistic campuses and college universities across America. He has looked up to and was looked up to by thousands. But after his recent death, his secret life became public. And the sexual scandal and the awful things that he lived in a duplicitous life that nobody knew about for years came to the forefront. And it ruined everything. Because Ravi Zacharias appeared to be something that he was not. And you know what I think when I read that story, other than my heart breaking? No one is immune from hidden hypocrisy. No one. 
If you think that this isn't you that we're talking about this morning because you don't have any major areas of a sex scandal going on in your life, you would be mistaken. No one, no one is immune from hidden hypocrisy. And can I go one more thing before I close? What is at stake in the kind of secret life that you live? What's really at stake? May I say the answer is in one word, everything. Everything. And Jesus tells us that it's that serious by using one word repeatedly in all three sections of the three spiritual disciplines we looked at. And the word is reward. In chapter 6, in verse 1, he says, if you do things and you have the wrong motive, see, it's not, it's not only important to do the right things for the right reasons, but you have to do it for the right person. See, And Jesus says, and if you don't got that down, here's what you will get, nothing. He says in 6.1, no reward, zero reward from your Father in heaven because you don't really have a relationship with him. When you get to heaven, you know what you'll get? Zero reward if you get there. He says in chapter 6 and verse 2, see these people who do it to be seen? They have their reward. They're not getting a reward in eternity. They have it now. See, it's a choice. And then he says in chapter 6 and verse 5, he says the exact same thing twice, so it must be important. In 6, 5 and 16, here's what he says. Truly I say to you, and that's a little formula that Jesus does every time he wants to introduce something, a statement he's going to say that he never wants you to forget that's incredibly important. He starts it with King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, here in our version ESV, truly I say to you, in other words, don't miss this because this is crucial. You know what he says? They have received their reward. And it means this, fully received. This is all they're getting. You get it? The reward they're getting is now. That's it. They're not getting one later. So I, I've come to understand and come to grips with this principle. The kind of righteousness you have will determine the kind of reward you'll have. The kind of righteousness you have will determine the kind of reward. If you have religious righteousness, you are going to have a religious reward. And you'll get it here and now, and that's it. But if you have kingdom righteousness you will get a kingdom reward and you will get it in heaven and will enjoy it for all eternity. So if it's external religious righteousness, you'll get your reward here because it comes from men. But if you have internal righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ, you will have a heaven reward because it comes from God. There's a text, don't turn there. The only other time outside this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about rewards is in Matthew 10, verses 41 and 42, and he says this, and if you receive a prophet, in other words, if you help out a prophet of God, you will get a prophet's reward. In other words, you help that prophet, you're going to get this. And these are big external things that everyone would know that you did, it, and it's good stuff. You'll help a prophet, you're going to get a prophet. If you receive a righteous man into your house, and you show some hospitality, and you're really nice, you're going to get a reward that the righteous man would get. And then he does a third example, and I've always glossed over it until I study this week. And then he says this, and anyone who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, and the Greek word is micro, one of these little kids, because they're a disciple of mine, you will never, and he uses the strongest way to say never, it's a double negative, you will never, never lose your reward. 
In other words, Jesus says, you do all these flamboyant, great things out in public, help a prophet, help a righteous man, but, but realize this. Even when nobody sees you taking this little kid and giving him a cup of water when he's really thirsty on a hot day and nobody sees you do it, can I tell you this? God sees it. It's not just helping prophets and righteous men. See, it's who you are. Even a little kid who needs a cup of cold water, if you do it because he's one of my disciples, you won't lose your reward. He says, I see it. There was an article that came out in 1953, and the title was this in the newspaper, Piltdown Man Hoax is Exposed. In 1911, scientific community came out in England with the bones they found of the Piltdown Man, they called it. He was supposed to be the earliest Englishman in recorded history from thousands and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago. It was the missing link between Apes and humans, or so they touted it to be. They had a skull and a jawbone and teeth that they had unearthed, and it was supposed to be one of the greatest scientific discoveries in centuries. It wasn't until the 1950s that with more study, they came to the realization that all the things, the skull, the teeth, the jawbone, it was all an ape. There was no human involved at all. And the 1953 article said it was the biggest scientific hoax in a century. In other words, here's what they said it was, but it was really completely nothing. It was a hoax. What if the biggest spiritual hoax in all of history is people who pretend to be religious and really don't even know God? What if that's the worst hoax ever? Imagine this, getting to heaven looking around and realizing that more than half of your friends and some of your family and people went to church are not there because their faith was a forgery. What about your reward? Will you get it here or there? Will you get it now or later? And you know what determines that? Your righteousness. Is it his or yours? Is it real Or is it religious? I'll close with this verse. Romans 2.16 says, In the day that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, because there will be a day, and perhaps soon, that God will look at the secret life of every individual according to his gospel and then the truth will be revealed. What about your secret life? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around this morning. See, even now, you're thinking out of fear because if someone knew that my life spiritually was a hoax, that I'm really not what I pretend to be, And I'm not really even sure as I sit in this pew that I'm a child of God. And I'd have to say that my spiritual secret life is more religious than true righteous. And if I admitted that, and wow, what would people think? See, that's exactly where Satan would want you to be. The fear of fitting in and being accepted and what will people think has damned people to hell. 
for centuries. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. If your secret life, can I say, is a hoax, you need to let God give you his righteousness today. To get into your heart to where you really live, where you really are, not where people think you are, but what you really are, and change your life. He has mercy. His mercy is more. We sang about his love is great. Will you let him inside today? Father, thank you that we can call you that. Father, there is hypocrisy in all of us. But Father, there's a kind of hypocrisy that will separate people from you for eternity. We pray that no one would walk out of here today with self-righteousness, only Jesus' righteousness. Help them to come clearly to that understanding of where they truly are in their relationship with you as your Holy Spirit takes your word to do your work as you can in their hearts. Please do that for your great honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.